Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. Episode 21, Flax for Dummies. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Mads and Scott, who I called David last episode because I'm full of the big dumb. Sorry, Scott. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com forward slash history Aotearoa. Last time, we told the famous story of how Maui slowed the sun to give us long days and how he attained fire. Before that, we were talking about Fakairo Rako, wood carving, what it was, what it meant, and the tools that were used to make the amazing pieces of art we see all over Aotearoa. Today, we will continue on with the arts with our new topic, weaving. Weaving had more of a practical purpose as opposed to carving's more historical, artistic and spiritual one. In saying that though, weaving was, and is, steeped in custom, tradition and tapu, which you really should see as a running theme by now. So the next few episodes are going to be about what Māori were wearing and how those clothes were made, continuing to build that picture of how a typical person in pre-European Aotearoa would have looked acted, and what their daily lives would have been like. If you remember back to the earlier episodes when Māori first arrived in New Zealand, the land of the Long White Cloud was much colder, wetter, and generally a lot less tropical than the East Polynesian lands that they had just migrated from. This required some drastic changes in the way they lived, with protection from these new elements being a high priority. The initial problem they encountered, though, was that the plants they typically used to make clothing didn't survive in this new climate. One of the more important plants that East Polynesian turned Māori brought with them was ote, or paper mulberry, which was used to make tapa, a type of cloth used to make garments. Not many of these survived the initial journey and replanting, but Joseph Banks, one of the key members of Captain Cook's crew, did record that there was a small group of these trees that was being cultivated and protected in the northern North Island, and noted that although not much tapa was made, it was highly prized, especially in small pieces for earrings. Overall, however, paper mulberry was not widely cultivated, so new sources of fibre were needed to make more highly protective pieces of clothing. Thankfully, Aotearoa had a bunch of native plants that were suitable for the job. And although Māori had seen nutmene, ifene, nutmene, ifene of these before, they were quickly able to figure out the best way to process them to get the best fibre, and then how to weave that fibre into something to wear. Like most parts of Māori culture during this time, what you used depended on what was available. So many different species of plants were used for different jobs, such as hohere or lace bark, kiakia, which is a climbing shrub found on trees in lowland forest, piango or kati grass, which grows in coastal areas, and the good old cabbage tree. All of these were used for a variety of weaved goods, not just clothes, which we will talk about later, but none of these were really the key to Māori weaving success. That esteemed honour goes to harakeke, flax, which actually isn't part of the flax family. It's a lily, so you can thank European biologists for that one. Anyway, this plant is found all over Aotearoa, and anyone even remotely familiar with the New Zealand landscape will be able to pick it out immediately with its distinctive 
blade-like leaves with tall stalks that occasionally flower. This is THE plant when it comes to Māori weaving, and what we will spend most of our time on, as most garments and items made with Māori hand weaving techniques are made from this plant. Not all flax is created equal though. For starters, there are two main species of flax, the harakeke we've already mentioned, which is common New Zealand flax, and farariki, mountain flax. Farariki is found generally along exposed coastlines and at altitudes of about 1300 metres. It reaches about 1.6 metres in height with low hanging sea pods, drooped leaves and lime green or yellow flowers. This plant was sometimes used for weaving, but the leaves produced less fibre of generally lesser quality, something that was noted by later European settlers as well. Farariki had nothing on the mighty harakeke though, which grows to a whopping 3 metres in height, with flower stalks growing up to 4 metres. It has much stiffer, stronger leaves, red-orange flowers that produce nectar that tui feed on, and can survive in a range of soils and climates, even swamps, something that will become a key component of the post-colonisation flax industry. From these two species, there are 60 known varieties, which were grown in pāharakeke, or flax plantations, that were highly prized by a hapu. A pāharakeke would often have multiple varieties of flax that were cultivated for their strength, softness, colour and fibre content, with different tribes having different uses for each variety. The identities of each flax variety were often highly guarded secrets, in case any neighbouring hapu, or even a neighbouring whānau, was trying to get an edge. Although the leaves are what we mostly are interested in, Māori used all parts of the plant for many different uses. Dried flower stalks were used to make mōkehi, or rafts, and the nectar was used to sweeten food. The sap was also used to treat boils, wounds, and relieve toothaches, with the juices being used as an antiseptic. Bindings were made from the leaves too for broken bones, and matted together to dress wounds, but they were, of course, used for that all-important weaving. There are a few different types of weaving that were used for different purposes and used different parts of the plant. Aranga, plaiting, is what many of you are likely more familiar with, the interlacing of leaves which was used to make mats, sails, and kete, baskets. There is also fatu, weaving, which is kind of like knitting but without the needles and just using your fingers, which made clothing, fish traps, and nets. The last is fiddy, braiding, to make rope and cord. We will talk more about these later on, but that gives you a general idea of what harakeke was used for. Before we can get to making stuff though, let's go back to the start. We have a nice, fully grown flax, and we need to get the leaves to turn into a nice cloak for your man. Or maybe you've seen Wurumu's wife Anahira has made a real nice mat, and damn, do you want a real nice mat for your fare too? So all we got to do is cut some leaves, slap them together, and bang, we got something, right? By the implication of this long-winded question, you've probably guessed that it isn't that straightforward. For starters, we can't just go in there, rip shit and bust, cutting down whatever leaves we want. Certain traditions need to be observed, traditions which may seem odd and superstitious, but are rooted in keeping the plant healthy 
and the subsequent weaving pristine. For example, flax was not gathered at night when it was too dark to see, or in the rain where it'll be too wet to work, or frost making it too brittle, or when it was too windy as the leaves would be too difficult to cut. Any trimmings and waste from later steps were placed under the plant in the soil, returning Papatu Inuku, the Earth Mother's gift, back to her, but also creating compost for the plant. Later on when weaving, weavers would not be allowed to eat, drink or smoke during weaving, or to weave in front of strangers, to stop them from getting distracted and making mistakes. Another custom that was followed was that a woman was not allowed to weave or even enter a pahara keke when she was menstruating. Given at that time, she'd be out of balance, physically, mentally, and spiritually. Now you're probably wondering what practical purpose that would serve, and some of you may have already guessed. Ladies, think about how you get during that time of the month. And fellas, think about how your missus gets at that time of the month. You get tired, you get cranky, irritable, cramps, you might tire easily, shorter attention span, all of which can lead to a mistake in the weaving process. Now I can hear it already. There are those of you that are raging because you think I'm a massive sexist and misogynist. Well, chickity check yourself before you wreck yourself because all of that was actually taken from a book by a woman. A woman considered to be one of the modern weaving greats. Eranoa Pukatapu Hete. So they're her words not mine. On a side note, her daughter, Veranoa, and her wider family have made a lot of the cloaks you see in museums, exhibitions, and even on foreign dignitaries and New Zealand's locals of high station. So if you see a kākahu, traditional Māori cloak, chances are her family made it. They are also extremely prominent in the carving world as well. Anyway, Assuming you observed the proper traditions, you needed to cut the leaves on a downward slope as close to the base of the plant as you can possibly get. The centre shoot of the flax plant is called the rito, with leaves directly next to it called the afirito or matua. These leaves are never cut, as they represent a centre of a person or the younger folk in a community. Cutting them away would quickly cause a person or a community to wither away just like cutting these leaves would cause the plant to wither and die. After the leaves were removed from the plant, the ribs that run the length of the leaf would need to be taken out, which would leave behind strips of flax. In modern times, haihai are used to perform this task, which are basically pieces of wood with small nails sticking out, or an old shearing comb. They can be intricately carved, or just be a block of wood really, but the way they work is you would use different sized hi-hi depending on how much of the leaf you wanted to remove as the sort of nails were set at different distances on each tool. The leaf would be placed on a hard surface and the hi-hi pinned on top of it. The leaf was then pulled along which would split the ribs of the harakeke from the rest of the leaf. This is, however, a modern invention. Pre-European Māori weavers had to use the next best equivalent, their fingernails, which just does not sound very pleasant at all. The ribs and other offcuts from this stage are returned to the flax as compost as mentioned before. 
The newly made strips were now sorted based on their length by holding them in a bundle with the cut ends together. The free hand then grabs the tips and shakes the bundle, making the smaller strips fall away and leaving a nice bunch of strips that are all roughly equal length. This is important for later on in the weaving process, as fibre that is of the same length is easier to work with, and gives a much better finished product than if all your strands are widely different lengths. These strips, although decent for raanga, weren't really that good for fatu or firi. The fibre inside is what was needed. The leaves were scraped, often with a mussel shell, to remove the outer green layer and most of the moisture from the leaf, which stops the fibre from rolling up too much. The actual technique that was used was that the shell was held against the underside of the leaf, which was on a hard surface. The other hand would then pull the leaf strip, which removed the material in a similar fashion to how you would curl strips of paper or ribbon with scissors. Sometimes a small incision is made to make this process easier as well. Once the excess is removed, any leftover waxy stuff is scraped off too, to leave hair-like fibres. If a closer weave is desired in the final product, the strips will be boiled in bundles for up to 5 minutes, before they are put into cold water, hung to dry, and then scraped again. This shrinks the harakeke strips, which can also be used for raranga if not being stripped. This fibre that we have been spending so much time talking about is called muka, the all-important part of the flax leaf used for weaving all sorts of stuff. But just because we have extracted it from the leaf doesn't mean we are ready to use it just yet. The muka strands were too small to use, so they were twisted together through metal, twining. This was basically taking strands and rolling them together with the palm and wrist. The amount of strands in a single unit would depend on the item being made. For example, for cloaks, it could be 10 to 20 strands. When these strands were rolled together, they formed a fenu, which were soaked overnight to remove any residual green stains. These fenu would then later be used for weaving, and to just go back to the cloak example, it could contain 600 to 700 fenu, each made from 10 to 20 strands of muka. By now, you should be seeing just how much work all of this takes, and we haven't even finished processing the fibre yet. These fenu were then tied into bundles of about 50, called firi fenu, and each of these was soaked in cold water for a few minutes before being placed on a cold stone and beaten with a patu muka. This was basically a stone club that removed the water from the muka and softened it in the process. The firi fenu was toned until all the fibre had been beaten, at which point it'd be put back into the water and the process repeated two more times. The fenu was also rubbed to make it even softer and more pliable. So those are the general steps to preparing harakeke fibre for weaving. These steps would vary depending on flax variety, the item you were making, the weaving techniques to be used, the finish you wanted to achieve, and even just between iwi. So if there are any of you out there that have whānau interweaving, don't come at me saying that this or that part is wrong, just meant to be a general overview, nothing too specific. At this point, you could begin weaving if you wanted, 
Some varieties of flax will have already achieved a white bleach colour by now that was a highly coveted colour for certain items, particularly cloaks. However, if you were feeling a bit fancy, or wanted to add some pop to your weaving, you could dye your mukka. Just like the fibre preparation, dyeing was often a pretty involved process, since Māori didn't have the fancy synthetic dyes we have today. It required a lot of rubbing and washing, to really get that colour into the fibre and have it stay, with the typical colours being mostly yellow, gold, brown, black, red, dark blue, and grey. In the modern era, this has been expanded due to the introduction of those synthetic dyes, which requires a lot less work to get into the fibre. These modern dyes are also used for the colour red, as despite it being a colour used a lot by pre-European Māori, the techniques of how it was made has unfortunately been lost. Dyes came from a variety of different places, such as yellow from the roots of the karamo and kākono trees, or tan from the bark of the teikaha. Most dyeing techniques involved boiling the mukka by placing hot, volcanic rocks into water with the appropriate bark or roots, and sometimes rolling the fibre in the ashes of a fire. Black was also a very common colour, but required a bit more work to get it into the mukka. The bark from makomako, hino slash fino, or tutu, would be pounded and mixed with cold water, soaking the mukka in it. Sometimes kanuka bark could be used for this as well, though it wasn't pounded if it was used. After leaving it overnight, the mukka would be dipped or buried for up to two nights in padu, a special dark mud high in iron salts. It was then removed, washed, and dried, leaving a nice permanent black colour, which was highly sought after, so iwi mud sources were a closely guarded secret. The thing about padu though, is that it's quite acidic, meaning fibre treated in this way didn't tend to survive very long, so we don't actually have any early examples in the archaeological record. One of the interesting things about this whole process is that the traditional times for gathering, boiling, and dyeing fibre was in autumn and summer, with winter and spring being the time for the actual weaving itself. The thinking is, is that this may have been due to most fibre producing plants being in season during the autumn and summer months, giving the best fibre. The summer months, that is December, January and February, also have much nicer weather, way better for being outside and gathering flax, with the fibre being drier as well. The autumn months, that is March, April and May, tend to be colder, but still fairly pleasant, lending themselves more to lighting a fire for boiling and huddling around. Winter, that is June, July and August, is pretty horrible, so you'd certainly want to stay indoors and weave. And I guess in spring, it's just nice to weave in the decent weather, having already done your gathering and boiling. Assuming you did all of that stuff correctly, you would now have some fenu, potentially in various colours, that can be used for weaving. As mentioned earlier, there are three main forms of weaving. Ranganga, fiti, and fatu. Plaiting, braiding, and weaving, respectively. Raranga is the one-over-the-other type technique you might be familiar with, 
utilizing unprepared or prepared harakeke depending on what was being made. Items made with this technique include kete, baskets, rauro, small food baskets, tatua, belts, and whakari, floor mats. There was also the raranga tatahi, open plaiting, which was a slightly different technique that could be used to quickly make strong baskets made of unprepared flax. Fidi was more like a hair plait, producing a long, narrow, tubular-like result, which was good for ropes and cordage. These could be made from 3 to 32 interwoven threads. The finest cord was used for pendants, but it also had applications in fishing and hunting gear, such as a device used to hold a Judas kaka to lure in others to catch, along with bindings in waka and fare for suspending clothes and personal items. Other uses for fiddy was strapping in sandals, carrying heavy loads on the back, suspension bands on cloaks, belts, and other garments. Fatu is the knitting technique, though it doesn't use needles. In fact, none of these techniques used tools at all. More often than not, they were performed with nothing but hands. Fatu used the mukafenu we talked about to produce all sorts of garments, including rain capes and the highly coveted kākahu cloaks, the finest of which were worn by rangatira. All of these techniques have remained largely unchanged over the centuries, despite the loss of many other traditional Māori techniques due to the arrival of Europeans. Next time. Now that we have turned harakeke into a material for weaving, we will discuss what this was being turned into, such as kete, baskets, fishnets, tukutuku panels, piu-piu, a type of skirt, and the famous kākahu cloaks. Form, function, and style is what it will all be about to build more of that picture of what a person in pre-European Aotearoa looked like. Also, to that person who wrote the review about slowing down with the Te Reo Māori names, I have heard you and I have attempted to accommodate. But if you are still unsure, there is a page on the website with the new words I present each episode, as well as transcripts from each episode as well. Hopefully these can help in trying to get those words and making sure you know what they mean. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can reach me through email at historyaltaroa at gmail.com or Twitter at historyaltaroa or Facebook at History Aotearoa New Zealand Podcast. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. This podcast is a one-man band. If you enjoy listening to me talk history, you can support us through Patreon or rate us on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. It means a lot and helps us grow, spreading the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, hari tu atu, hoki tu mai, see you next time.